you feel the world is broken? Do you feel the shadows deepen? Did you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? that we could see it all made do We do Is all creation groaning? It is Is a new creation coming? It is Is the glory of the Lord to be within our midst Is it good that we remind ourselves of this Is anyone worthy Is anyone whole Is anyone able to break the seal
Uh, Pastor Daniels asked me to read the scripture, which will serve as his text this morning, and that is Matthew chapter 7, if you'd like to turn to it, verses 1 through 12. Matthew 7, verses 1 through 12. The words of Jesus. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Lord, bless his word to our hearts. Pastor Daniel. Okay, good morning, church. The morning of spring forward is always kind of like the snow days. It shows us who is truly committed here and who is at home in their jammies. I'm kidding. Thank you guys for joining us virtually. Hope you're awake this morning with your lost hour of sleep. And um, let's begin. So when we tackle sermons and the scriptures, what we have to do is, you know, we have to learn how to uh, uh, interact with this world and our culture and learn how to take the words of this, of the gospel, of the scriptures, of God's inspired word and say, how do we really bring it to modern day conversations that are happening? Um, Sometimes, you know, some uh, branches of Christianity like to kind of live in their own bubble and, and, you know, hide from those things or don't really, you know, give a lot of effort towards interacting with them this morning. We're going to do a little bit of that before, uh, well, simultaneously as getting, you know, kind of boots on the ground, personal in our lives. So this sermon, I believe, cannot really come in a more timely manner. Um, America is, believe it or not, we are facing a spiritual awakening, although in a very unexpected way that I'm still kind of just so surprised by. We are facing a spiritual awakening that is reaching into the depths of our nation's soul and is facing the problem of guilt. Guilt of our national past, wrongdoing in modern times, 
and so forth. This is really part of the polarization that is rapidly dividing our nation. We are, we are split in two, both sides pointing fingers at one another's guilt, or sometimes what is considered to be guilt. And usually the response is to do what we can to either publicly attack, cancel each other out, or do some kind of version of scapegoating or maybe even cultural exile. Now, this is a problem on both sides of this polarization. I'm not just identifying one side, and you know what sides I'm talking about. This passage is about judgment, or as we will see, <clears throat> judgment that is so strong that it is really more than judgment. Really, what Jesus is referring to here is, <clears throat> and most commentators agreed with this, it's condemnation. So right now, when we find guilt in our country, whether it is in past or present times, it's fascinating to watch because no one really knows what to do with it, right? No one really knows how to handle guilt. And yet the fervor towards identifying the guilt is ever increasing. And then judgment becomes the name of the game. Judgment unto public shame with real no vision, with no real vision for what happens. Like, when do we stop? When is this judgment accomplished? When are we complete in dealing with this punishment? It reminds me of a famous American classic, The Scarlet Letter. Maybe you read that in high school. Hester, who has, you know, spoiler alert, she conceived a child out of wedlock with the town's priest and obviously could not hide her guilt. Her judgment in this Puritan colony, the 1600s, was to have a letter stitched into her clothing that would be a permanent fixture for the remainder of her days, the letter A for adultery, in order that she may continually carry around that shame wherever she goes around town, and that was considered an adequate judgment. It always stayed with her. There was no vision for, you know what, that's enough. We've She's repented or she's dealt with this or the punishment's enough. There's no vision for that. It was ever going for the rest of her life. But today, rather than stitching any letter on people's blouses, we kick people off social media. We boycott buying their products. We send out angry tweets or post angry things on Facebook to increase public exposure. And all this stuff further creates a polarity so that when you are sitting at your dining room table with your aunt or uncle or cousin or whomever, they don't quite share whatever ideology that you maybe identify with, and they say things you don't, uh, that you not only disagree with, but you consider as so bad that even approving of it makes them guilty to some degree, the question becomes, what do you do with that? Our cultural climate trains us to think that we must cast, just go off. Just judge. Tell them why they're wrong. Tell them what it's, it's so dangerous to believe whatever they believe and, and why approving of it makes them utterly guilty. And then after that, what do you do? Well, you, what do you do? Cancel your aunt or cousin or uncle from your future dinner parties, right? We got to zoom out for a minute. This is ultimately the age-old problem of judgment, sin, and guilt. And the Bible, of course, has a lot to say about this topic, all cultures for all societies have had their own way of facing one another's guilt one another, and judging that guilt or whatever they consider to be guilt. And we are watching an awakening right now in very revolutionary ways. If you guys aren't like awake, you should pay attention to this stuff. There's, there, everyone's trying to deal with everyone's moral transgressions and guilt. 
transgressions in ages past and transgressions in ages today. And everywhere in our nation, everyone, a lot of people at least, seem anxious to start stitching letter A's on the other people's blouses and to flaunt their sins as publicly as they can from every corner. As if our judgment, that kind of judgment, carries this authority that we can't even question. And to bring it to our personal life, we're going to ask questions that are um, they're related. This is a little more boots on the ground. So in your personal life, if you will, um, when that person sits next to you in the pew that maybe isn't your age or doesn't look like you or maybe speaks a different language or, or smells different from you or comes from a different socioeconomic status or that one family with the kids who are just always crazy and aren't like your kids who aren't crazy and you just wish that they would just get their kids in order. If you're sitting next to, you know, uh, in, in your day-to-day life, you're that person from a different generation saying, well, in my day, we did it this way. And if this young people would only get stuff together like we did, and young people are thinking, well, if they only understood what we're facing and all this little kind of whispers in your mind of just judgment is being cast to those around you, admittingly, to some degree, we are all guilty of something like that. Now, as we address all of these things, I'm going to make a very clear argument with you. There's only really one pathway ahead in our lives in terms of dealing with with those issues in our personal life and even on a national level. Again, I'm talking about both sides of the fence here. There's only really one pathway ahead and it is Jesus Christ, the gospel, and the vision that Christianity has been laying out for millennia, which is this. Guilt can be washed away. That we are able to be redeemed and that those who are guilty of past sins have the opportunity to be a new creation in Christ today. And that we were all enemies of God, but even while we were enemies, he still loved us and he still died for us and grace is available for all who may come to Jesus Such a message of grace is nowhere to be found in our culture right now. In the church, we should be remaining in the corner to say, hey, we actually have an answer here. It's called grace. You ever heard of Jesus? And this is what we can do today. But I want to look at these words carefully in this text as we dive into it, beginning in verse 1 in chapter 7. This is a word of the Lord. Judge not that you be not judged. How many times have you said that or somebody said that? Don't judge me. What do you, don't judge, you know. Most memorized verse in the Bible probably. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged and the measure you use, it will be measured unto you. Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, we got to wrestle with this because there's a contradiction that seems to be coming out of Jesus' mouth. Don't judge that you don't be judged, right? And then a few verses later, he says, um, you know, once you remove the log, then you can take the speck out of your brother's eye. Then you can judge. It's like, well, Jesus, you just said not to do that. And then you said you can then take the speck out of your brother's eye. So we got to wrestle with this. Like, what, what does he really mean? Like, never judge for the rest of your life. Like, I'm not judging anybody. Nope. Well, he just told you to take that speck out when the time is right. So let's wrestle with this. What does he mean by judging one another? Well, thankfully, and this, I, I say this sarcastically, 
just as preface, Jesus is a master teacher. I mean, I love this stuff of Jesus because I know what he was doing. He, he said things to kind, of, to, to kind of first make us pause and say, wait, what, Jesus? And he's like, ha, are you listening? You want to wrestle with me a little bit? Because I'm, I'm pretty big here. My teachings are pretty deep here. You got to wrestle with what I'm saying. So Jesus, the term used for judgment here is the most generic possible term. It can be sitting, it can be covering topics from ranging the judge sitting on his bench in a courtroom to my two-year-old getting mad at his brother for, you know, playing the wrong way with the blocks and he judges him and smacks the blocks. Like whatever judgment you talk of can be, it's like a junk drawer term, just thrown in there, all right? And so rather than being some kind of like cryptic words from Jesus, I think he's saying you gotta, you gotta wrestle with this. Now, so let's go back in history just for a minute here in Jesus's day. And if you were that original audience with that kind of junk drawer term and in context of this Sermon on the Mount as a whole, and most commentators agree, you know, with this, like what would be the most plausible thing that they would have understood with the word judgment? Because this text was originally, obviously it's written to us, but there's an audience originally here with Jesus' teaching. And they're an ancient audience 2,000 years ago. So let's try to get into their minds a little bit. Many of the religious teachers in Jesus' day spoke judgments against others routinely with such authority. And this is one stumbling block of why Jesus made people trip up all the time because he spoke with a greater authority than they did. And they're like, who are you think you are? Where are the Pharisees? Where are the Bible teachers? Our authority is so, we're the teachers of the law. We know best. Are you listening to us? Because we have the proper understanding and we have the, the you know, the, you listen, listen to our words and we know how to interpret this. And that kind of confidence almost puts them with this quasi-divine uh, uh, authority that they would teach the Bible with, right? Um, and, and that kind of confidence is what Jesus, most people agree here, is really kind of addressing, Right? Um, it's, 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 I don't know if you've had this happen to you when somebody gets a Bible verse, like you, you say something or you try to be you know, vulnerable for a minute with somebody and they're like, well, this verse says this and you need to stop. And they just kind of like whack you in the head with the Bible verse and just walk away. And it's like, thank you for hammering me with a Bible verse, right? And that's how, you know, a lot of people use the Bible in this day is like kind of hammer. It's like, here's a bunch of stuff to do and we're gonna smack you with it until you just start doing it. And of course, we know from this sermon, Jesus is always aimed at the heart. But the idea of um, judging with that kind of authority and using scripture with that kind of almost divine authority as you speak, is, that's probably the area that he was referring to, leading one New Testament scholar to say, we might, we plausibly really could translate, judge not that you be not judged as condemn not, that you be not condemn. So here's the idea. If you want to speak on behalf of God to someone else's sin, Jesus is saying this, there's a glaring issue, my friends. Be careful because you just might be lacking a little bit of self-awareness. Because according to Jesus, when you are focusing on that speck in your brother or sister's eye, you are missing the two-by-four sticking out of your own face. And yes, that is a joke from Jesus. Jesus makes jokes and this is one of them. It's a really funny image, is it not? Like imagine somebody's trying to like point out somebody said there's this big board just like waving around. People are like, you know, there's a, you see your face looking in the mirror as a recent buddy? Like you should check out what's going on right now. 
Jesus says, if, did you know that when you talk that way to others, when you're casting such serious authority, kind of a judgment to other people with such great confidence, right, and telling someone else what's in their own eye, do you have awareness of what's sticking out of your face? There's a great story in Scripture that really, he, he, he put this to task, right, in John chapter 8, um, he's uh, called into this crowd of people. He's summoned. He said, Jesus, come here. We got, we got something for you here. We caught this lady in the act of adultery. And they dragged her publicly, threw her in front of an audience. Talk about public shame, right? Caught in the act, thrown in the ground. And they're saying, look, Jesus, the law of Moses, you know what it says, right? That we need to stone somebody like this. There's a death penalty for such sin, which is harsh, right? I said, Jesus, what do you say, Mr. Bible teacher? What do you want to say to this? And what, you know, it seems like, oh no, they got Jesus in the corner. What is he going to do, right? And he calmly and quietly says, probably calmly and quietly says in response, those without sin cast the first stone. Nobody does anything. They walk away and he says, lady, where are those people that condemned you? Where do they go, right? Because they all had their own two-by-fours sticking out of their own face, and there's plenty of scriptures in the laws that could be swung at their own faces as well, saying, well, you are just as guilty of other sins as she is, and so maybe before you jump on that person, you need to engage in a bit of self-awareness on your own. This is a doctrine that has historically been a part of Christianity, um, really carefully defined for uh, probably 1,700 years or so, and it's called original sin, that we're sinners really from day one. Um, My son Silas is not even two, and whenever we ask the question, what's in your mouth, or give me what's in your hand, or do you need a new diaper, anybody can guess what he's learned to do very quickly. What does he do? He runs away. He's like, I'm getting out of town. And he takes off. Now, who trained him to do that? Was I like, hey, Silas, look, this time when I ask you to do something, run away, okay? Because that's called disobedience. I need to teach you how to disobey. Of course not. It's like a a natural inclination for a kid to disobey. Who Who taught them how to lie? Nobody. We have to teach them how to obey because the natural state of humankind is to sin. And we all know that is true. Jesus is pointing us towards a humility and towards an axiom that our sermon will end with. He's saying you have to be aware of your own sin. You have to learn to do so. He he says clearly that, yes, you know, there will come a correct time to sit with a brother or a sister and to bring some correction into their life. But you got to keep in mind the difference between condemnation and constructive criticism because in the whole of Scripture, we know the verse, Iron sharpens iron, says the Proverbs. Look how it, um, learn how it feels to look at your own wrongdoing. Who enjoys when you screw up and you become aware of it to say, oh, this feels so great. This feels wonderful. It never feels good. But if you're honest, you know it's necessary for your growth in Christ to face that about yourself. We're called to do so. It's the Spirit's job. One of his jobs is to do so. Therefore, when you do try to make someone aware of that speck in your eye, do so in a manner that you would have done to you. You want to grow from this, right? 
Don't do it in a manner that only points toward their guilt, that you hammer over the head with something and give them no options afterwards, but say, hey, look, I, look there's good news. You can, you can grow, you can repent, you can grow from this, you can turn from this. The Spirit of God is in you and Jesus has nothing but grace after grace after grace. His grace is unlimited towards you. So look at your sin and, and grow. That is gospel-fueled criticism. That is grace. That is forgiveness. That is love. You know that you are a sinner, just like everyone else. And when you look at the cross, you see a very vivid picture of the wrath of God. You want to know how ugly and how uh, 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 offensive to God your sin was and just truly what you are deserving of, you look at the cross. You look at the, the blood that he shed, the, the crown of thorns. If you come to our Good Friday service, you want to hear in very vivid detail what exactly took place on the cross. And it may just shock you as to the abhorrence and the, and the actual pain that he went through uh, in reality, what, what, how, just how awful it really was. That should have been you. And you see that and you say, wow, I've received a lot of grace Someone did that, and not just anybody, God himself took that in my place. And here I am, quick to judge others. Am I not so grateful for the grace I've received? If God received judgment on my behalf, why am I not extending helpful truth and criticism for the grace of others and pointing others towards the only place where they can find forgiveness and grace as well? You'll see how this understanding of this is fueled by verse 12 at the end of our time today. So yes, there is a time, church, when it may be necessary to oust somebody from fellowship due to their hard-heartedness of sin. There is a time for that kind of severe, you can call that a form of judgment here. So I'm not by any means saying that we don't cast something like that. It happens. Paul addressed this in a Corinthian church for the man who, clinging to some old pagan roots, okay, he was actually um, engaging his stepmother in ways that he should not have been. And this is probably some pagan ritual that was uh, left over from former times. And when he was approached, he said, I don't care. And Paul says, you got to get this guy out of your fellowship because that's a hard-heartedness that is... Um, that's a sin that he's refusing to repent of, okay? So the church said, all right, they did so. In 2 Corinthians, such a cool story, by the way. 2 Corinthians, we see Paul writing at the very beginning about grace and dealing with, you know, what is godly sorrow. And this is what he says, right? Apparently the guy was genuinely repentant. And he was like, I want to turn from my old ways. And the church was like, sorry, buddy, No. And Paul, in verse 6 in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, he says, guys, the punishment that took place, the, you know, it's enough. Like it actually led to his repentance. And so you should rather turn to forgive him, to comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. That is the gospel in action that you will not find in our nation right now. Our cultural leaders are not extending to us such a radical vision of grace with one another. If you allow yourself to be led by them, I'm talking about both sides here, even some on the right, yes, you will not be led in a very gracious path. Only a hostile one, only paths of judgment, 
hostility, mocking, and maybe even retribution. Jesus offers a far better payment himself, and he offers grace in his resurrection. So when you see that person who you feel inclined to cast judgment of, remember your own sins. Remember the grace you've received in Christ, and then and only then, for that person's growth, take that speck out of their eye. Make sure your own two-by-four doesn't whack them on the way in. And what you may find is someone who is in need of the grace of Jesus, just like you. And then Jesus continues with a sort of side note comment. So we're going to briefly look at this, because it's related, but kind of like a, another footnote of Jesus's. Okay, he says in verse 6, Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So how do you know who qualifies as a dog or a pig? You have to bring judgment. You see how this works? You know, Jesus is challenging us here, right? You have to make some kind of judgment here when it comes to this. And so I love his style. It keeps us on our toes. So I, I think this is the idea. I'll be honest. I, I don't know how many commentaries I read on this one. And every single one had a different opinion. Because there are sometimes Jesus says things, you're like, this is, uh, what does this even mean? This is tough, right? So I'm going to try to be as general as I can to try to aim for what he was aiming at, which I think there's many ways to really apply this scripture. I think it can be applied like this. When we interact with others, when we give that correction to others, or when we extend undeserved grace, or when we need to bring a quick or gentle rebuke to someone, we need to consider things like timing. Sometimes withholding that pearl of a corrective word for the right time is important, but sometimes people are not ready to hear certain things. I'll share a story that um, I think displays this. Uh, one time I failed at something. I know, it's surprising, it's shocking, but I dropped the ball. And this wasn't just like in a little way, like this was a pretty big way, if I'm honest. Some people got hurt, right? And my Christian, my, my Christian friends, they were so kind to me. They came around and said, look, it wasn't your fault. All the while I'm thinking it kind of was, actually. And, you know, it's okay. God loves you. We love you. It's okay. And very comforting. And I appreciated those words. But about a month later, another Christian friend took me out to lunch, looked me in the eye and said, buddy, you screwed up. Have you owned it yet? Have you looked at your own failure yet for what it was, admitted it? Have you asked for forgiveness from the people that you hurt along the way? And have you chosen to look at that and say, Jesus, what can I do to grow from this so maybe that won't happen again? And I remember sitting at lunch just kind of being a little taken back by his strongness, but I, a couple of things happened in my mind. I started instantly thinking, this is perfect timing. If he would have approached me the day after or a week after, I would have been like, buddy, leave me alone, right? It was the right time to speak that pearl of wisdom into my life. And all I could say was, you are absolutely correct. And I find myself even maybe more grateful for his difficult words than even the words of comfort that initially I was met with. And so no, when it comes to these kind of situations, consider Right, Because if it's the wrong timing, this happened to me before, I've approached people in the wrong time and I have gotten kind of bit back in response, right? Fiercely, because the timing was off. 
So there's many other ways to apply that, but it's kind of a side note. I want to continue on to the back end of our sermon today. So far, we have been talking about kind of person-to-person relationships, how to interact and to bring appropriate criticism to one another that's not as authoritative as if we are God speaking, but how to bring graceful judgment towards one another. We've, been, we've briefly looked at our society and all the ways that our culture is, is failing in this area and began hinting at how the gospel remains the only real valid way to navigate these waters. And I want to simplify this conversation and begin reaching some conclusions so let's turn to the removing, um, return to kind of the previous conversation, right, about judging others, about our sin, and the grace we receive from Jesus. Because now Jesus says, all right, as we've been talking about in a person to person, let's look at you and God right now. Let's, let's ask the question, how, how has God treated you? All right, we've talked some about that, but now he, he really gets to it. He says, how has God cared for you? And he starts throwing out some breadcrumbs that conclude in verse 12. He says this, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. This is a law, and this is the prophets. So just a couple of things. Number one, don't read this as if to say, great, God's like a genie in a lamp. Just going to rub him, and I get whatever I want. No, we know that's not how this works. When I was living in New York City and turning at a church, my old 96 Honda, I was driving it. I felt that transmission slipping. If you want to know what a, a faith-filled prayer was, I was making it. I mean, I was just saying, Lord, I, I claim right now this transmission can be healed, and you can do it, and you will do it, because I didn't have 2,000 bucks to drop, and sure enough, I dropped $2,000 for a new transmission. I was even told not to replace my fluid beforehand because maybe it hasn't been changed in forever and it would jack your transmission up. I did it anyway. There was a lesson to be learned. And God, as our Father, is looking down at me saying, Son, did you learn your lesson? Listen to people who know better than you. And that's the context here. God is our Father, right? Jesus, if you will, is trying to, um, yeah, domest- can I use the word domesticate our relationship with God? Does that make sense? Like he's bringing us to realize that we have a daddy in heaven. Did you, you ever call God your daddy, right? He's our daddy in heaven who he wants to love us. He wants to dish out wonderful things to us like any good daddy would. He meets them, those things, like a father meets the requests of his children, I want to be pastoral here for a minute with a pastoral word. It, you may be sitting here thinking, well, that sounds great. You didn't know my dad. Hearing that God is my daddy and my father, that doesn't necessarily communicate comfort to me. Because maybe your father walked out on you when you needed it most. Maybe your father hurt you, even abused you. Maybe he was just emotionally distant in all the ways you always felt like you never knew him, Right? Um, that could be you sitting here this morning. There's a line from a song that came out some 15 years ago that 
written from a guy whose father had abandoned his family and his two brothers and his mom. And he said, my mother taught my brothers and I not to call you daddy, but only to call you father. Maybe he had a father, he never had a daddy. If that is you, I am sorry. Um, By God's grace, I had a daddy and he's still a wonderful man. But I need you to know that Jesus, when he was in the most dire of circumstances in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know how he addressed his father God? He said, Abba, Father, if this cup of death can be removed from me, please let it be. And Abba is that word that just means daddy. Paul picks this up in Romans 8 with those who have received salvation from God, he says, you do not receive the spirit of slavery in your salvation to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, we cry, Daddy, Father. Jesus is saying, God is your daddy. He is a good daddy who loves to give you good things. He wants to be gracious to you. And we have such confidence that what we receive from him is a good gift. He will not give us a snake when we ask for a stone. This is how our daddy in heaven treats us. This is the grace he gives us when we get burned in this world. If you instinctively know this about good daddies, be assured that God is everything you dreamed of plus more because he is your real daddy. I don't care how old you are or how young you are, deep down you want that love from your daddy. We need our daddy's approval. And this is remarkable because in our context of scripture here, right before, you know, uh, uh, before we had Jesus telling us about that two by four sticking out of our face, and now he's talking about gracious gifts that we receive from our daddy in heaven, even while maybe that two by four is sticking out of our face. And these texts start coming together as we're, you know, uh, rebuking that person for the speck and that board is there. Jesus is still saying, God loves you. You know that? He's your daddy. He wants to give you good stuff. He's saying, this is how God treats you. He sent his son to this earth. If anyone is deserving to take that board out of your face and start smacking you back with it, it is God. But he has the authority to do so, but he's your daddy. And as we know the story of the Gospels and the New Testament that the Old Testament culminated in throughout biblical history, God has always been planning to send his son into this world who could open up this time of grace that would be available to cover our sins. That even though we are deserving of that stone of judgment to be hurled at us, like that woman caught in adultery, Jesus is found leaning down and giving us the bread of life. If that is how your daddy treats you, how are you then to care for others? How are you then to perceive others in their guilt? Don't you love such grace from God? So are you not then to extend that to others, even when they don't deserve it? In his masterful manner, Jesus kind of concludes this little section with this verse. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is a law and the prophets. It's that word so. So we know this is a connected thought of what just came before it. So because of what I just said, whatever you wish that others would do to you, if you enjoy that, that God does that to you, aren't you to do that to other people? 
This is a summary of the Bible, by the way. Jesus says this, this is the law and the prophets. What's the Bible in summary? Well, that's it, right? What you would desire to be done to you, do unto others. As we close this morning, I have a couple of concluding remarks. Be people of grace. Be people of humility. Don't let these modern ideologies start commanding your hearts. Everyone canceling everyone else out, pointing out all their guilt and all their shame, identifying it and saying, bam, you're guilty and you should be punished when you cast that critical eye towards that person who has issues piled as high to the heavens. And even against those who maybe have truly sinned against you and maybe are actually indeed worthy of judgment as Jesus followers, the path of the kingdom of flourishing says this, I have my own sins too. I do have guilt, I'm aware, but I know that one was punished on my behalf and was raised for my newness of life and my adoption is now into his family and he is now my daddy through Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. So now my past, present, and future guilt and all of my sins, they are not who I am. That is not who I am anymore because Jesus was judged on my behalf. And God, my daddy, gave me the gift of life, of eternal life, as he sent his son to die in my place and to open up the path to salvation for me and you. So even now, you can find the same grace that I received in Christ. Are you willing to not be people of judgment, to admit your own failures and to embrace the grace you have received in Christ and radically extend it to others. Because I'm telling you, mark my words, there's a lot of things spinning out of control in our nation right now. And this message quite literally remains the only remaining answer that can actually solve this problem. Jesus still holds that position as the good news. Emmanuel, let's extend this gospel grace to Wilmington in radical ways in the coming months as we enter post-COVID world, hopefully sooner than later. I dream of a church in America that is full of people from all corners of this nation, from all colors, all economic backgrounds, who even in the midst of their sins, even in the midst of whatever history they bring to the table, that we find unity and we find grace in one another, being adopted as sons and daughters into our daddy's kingdom in Christ by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. While our nation divides, may the church unite. And may we display and preach and show the good news of Jesus as we sharpen one another in his image. Let us pray. Jesus, I think of that glimpse in Revelation that John got of people from every tribe and tongue and nation in heaven just singing your praises and their tongues were still heard from all nations because Lord, it is a beautiful thing to see this world that once belonged to you, that was separated from you, that you are through your son by the ministry of the spirit. It says in Colossians, you are reconciling the world back to yourself. May we be agents of reconciliation, not agents of, of judgment, Lord. As Paul says, leave it to your wrath. You will come. You will judge. You will finally rid this world of all sin. But we're not here to do that, Lord. We're here to wash the feet of our enemy. We are here to give them a hot meal when they need it. 
We are here to be an example of a reconciled humanity beneath the same roof. When everywhere else in our nation, there's none of that is, is found or even really invited these days, but here may it be true of us. Lord, may we as a church minister to one another in helpful ways, care for one another, be kind, be gracious, be truthful, but be gracious to one another. And Lord, may the love that is spread in this church through one another, through our relationships, through our caring for each other, through our investment into one another, Lord, may that be something that becomes contagious in this city, that people see it, our neighbors witness it, Lord, and, and people start running and saying, I, 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 I need that in my life. What do you have? And Lord, may we be prepared, as Peter said, to have an answer for the hope that is within us. We love you, Jesus, so much. The gospel is always amazing, beautiful, wonderful, true, and is always the only answer that can heal any nation's woes. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen.